it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Sorry to uh, have to step in for Thomas. I I uh, know he would not like it this way if he had a choice in the matter, but the poor guy, he has caught the uh, deadly childhood uh, germs. So when I was a young lad, um, I remember being taken to school in the morning and dropped off by my father. And it wasn't long before the cramps would set in. And uh, I'm talking about, you know, my early teens. My stomach would start to knot up, the anxiety level would ratchet up, and I'd dash to the restroom every morning, and I'd, I'd sort of hide in there uh, as long as I could until I had to go to class. And I, I remember that impact in my life uh, for a very long time. Uh, up until really the time I married my wife, I had developed this habit, if you will, this bad uh, anxiety condition to where I would internalize everything and uh, it would, I'd get so stressed out. You know, I was, I was already a loner. But uh, because I got stressed and anxious, and I would, I would start having panic attacks. And uh, I know it's more rare for, for men to have panic attacks than it is for women, but it was a very real thing. And it got to the point where I was not just, you know, trying to figure out what was going on inside me, but it was, it was like I started becoming afraid of being afraid. The panic was so real that I would just freak out and just run. Um, and, and I didn't know why. I didn't know what was going on. I could feel my heart racing. I could feel my pupils dilate. I could feel myself break into a sweat. And I thought, something's wrong with me. I'm dying. And, I, and the immediate response was, i got to get home, right? i got to go home where I'm safe. And I tell you that because uh, worry and fear in our society have, have really exploded into epidemic proportions. Um, most of the Christians I talk to either struggle one way with anxiety and depression, or they struggle the other way with out-of-control anger. And it's usually 50-50 split one way or another, but it's almost like anxiety is prevalent just about in everybody in our culture now. Social anxiety... Uh, fearful situations, and I have watched, I was in the medical field for 14 years, and I'm not making a judgment call here, I'm just saying I watched the prescribing of antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs go through the roof um, over a couple of decades, to the point now where, where it's just wide scale that nearly everybody, uh, that's probably an overstatement, Nearly everybody at some time or another has tried these things. And, and I'm, I'm not making a judgment call one way or another. I'm like that guy at Walmart with the name badge here. Ask me, I like to help, right? I'm here to help you this morning. My goal is to help you that if you're struggling with depression or anxiety, particularly worry or fear, that Psalm 23, my hope, will minister to you this morning. If you're not there already, turn to Psalm 23, and I will give it a read-through, and, and I'll give you a little background, and then we'll talk about 
how this is going to impact us today. My hope when I preach is always to change your will. I'm going I'm to tip my hand on the front side here and just say that the preaching of the Word of God should change your will. Right? Did you come here this morning just so you could hear a nice message and then go about your merry way? Or did you come here this morning hoping to hear from God and walk out differently? Well, for me, I would hope it's the latter. God's Word should change us. It should fundamentally change how we view life, how we approach life, uh, how we think, how we feel even. Um, and so Psalm 23, my hope, will, will uh, change your view about these things. Familiar territory, probably one of the most recited psalms. I've done a n- many funerals now. And uh, as I stand next to the open graves, I've read this passage, I can't tell you how many times now. It, it brings people great comfort. Uh, and when I actually explain to them why, it kind of changes them. Um, it it kind of helps them to understand why it's meaningful to them. So here it is. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's a very comforting psalm. And this psalm uh, was written by King David, who himself was a shepherd as a young lad, you'll remember. Uh, in his pre-king days, uh, 1 Samuel 16:11 tells us that David was a shepherd boy. And uh, in this psalm, he's metaphorically viewing himself as one of the sheep in God's pasture, with God being his shepherd. Uh, so it's, it's, if you will, it's looking through the eyes of a, of a sheep and seeing our shepherd on the hill watching over us. By the way, this is not the only place in Scripture where God is likened to a shepherd. Uh, Psalm 28, 9, Psalm 80, verse 1, God is likened to a shepherd. And, and it's an ironic start to a psalm when you think about it, because shepherds were the lowliest caste of society. They, were out, they lived on the outskirts of town with their sheep. Uh, so they were, in a sense, very lowly. And here he's likening the eternal God, the majestic God, the king of the universe, to an outcast of society. So right away, your mind has to think in terms of this is, this is a shocking opening to this psalm, right? But what I want to do is I want to look at this psalm and learn two lessons about our great shepherd. We want to learn two lessons from the perspective of a sheep. And my hope is that it will free our souls from the grip of worry and fear. Let's face it, we worry all the time. We do. 
Even if we say we don't, we say, yes, God is sovereign, but... Right? How many of you say that? Yes, God is sovereign, but what about this? Maybe he doesn't know about that, right? And I'm going to start off with kind of a humorous thing and tell you that if you're a Christian who has a but, you're in sin. That's probably going to be the only thing you remember today, right? (laughs) But the reality is that if you're always saying but, if there's always something that is an exclusion of God's sovereignty, you have what we call Dud's Syndrome. Dud's syndrome, a deficient understanding of divine sovereignty. And that is that you really don't believe in the sovereignty of God. It's a lack of faith. And as one who used to panic because of my fear and worry, I can tell you firsthand that's exactly what it is. And if you want to overcome then you're going to have to learn to trust God more. And that's where we are today. We're going to learn a couple of lessons really about trusting God more from the perspective of a sheep. Now, I've never raised a sheep. I don't know much about them. When I was preaching this message the first time, I actually said that sheep had fur. People told me later, sheep don't have fur, they have wool. And I said, well... My sheep have fur. I'm not an outdoorsman. You'll find that out as we get to know each other. Uh, The first lesson that we're going to learn is that we need not worry because of our shepherd's provision. Now, this psalm, if you'll notice with me, just take a look at the psalm. There's two statements in here that divide up the psalm, and they're key. They control One controls the first half of the psalm. The other one controls the second half of the psalm. So verses 1 to 3 are controlled by this statement, I want not. Okay? I don't want for anything because the Lord is my shepherd. The second half of the psalm in verse 4 you're going to see is, even though I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, not I fear. See that? I will not fear. Those two statements control the two halves of the psalm. And so that's what we're talking about this morning, is that we need not worry because of our shepherd's provision. He provides for his sheep. Now, one of the biggest reasons that people worry is because they feel they are helpless. They are all alone in the world. Uh, that maybe they won't have their needs met, the basic needs of food and shelter and clothing. Oh, Jesus addressed that in the Sermon on the Mount, didn't he? He says, why do you worry? You know, if your Lord cares for the birds of the air, if he cares for the grass of the field, isn't he going to care for you? Is he going to meet your needs, right? Well, clearly God meets our needs. Wrapped up in the word provision is a, it's a compound word, provideo. It means to see beforehand. And what that means is that God sees our needs beforehand and he meets them. That's where the word provision comes from. It's from providence, uh, provideo. So the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
Interestingly, the word shepherd is not a noun. It's a participle in Hebrew. And what a, what's the big deal about that? Well, it describes God more in terms of what he does rather than what he is. Does that make sense? In other words, he is the shepherding one. God is the shepherding one. And in fact, David lists several ways that God shepherds him here, right in the text. Four times in the first three verses, he says the word he. You see that? He makes me lie down. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me. Right? It's all about him. That's what the shepherd does. And these four statements group into two sections, if you will, two provisions. And the first provision, you want to write this down, is refreshment for our souls, verses 2 and 3. Refreshment for our souls. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Now, these are obviously metaphors for spiritual blessings that God or the Good Shepherd provides. It literally is very poetic. Uh, Hebrew changes the, the wording around sometimes uh, to, to give it more of a poetic flavor. It, it literally reads, In meadows grassy he causes me to lie down. Beside waters quiet he leads me. My soul he restores. That's kind of how it's literally read. So what is about this idea, uh, he makes me lie down? Well, I, again, I don't know much about sheep, and I didn't know this. I, I always re- kind of read past this very quickly, and I never thought about the fact that, that sheep don't lie down very readily on their own. It is a causative verb. He literally makes them lay down. He, he causes them to repose, to recline, to stretch out on green grass. Uh, and I didn't think about that, but Philip Keller in his book, he's, he's a pastor and an author. He wrote a book called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And he said there are four things that keep sheep from lying down. I didn't know this. Fear, friction, flies, and famine. They are timid and must be free of all fear in order to rest. Socially, they will not lie down unless they are free from friction with other sheep. If tormented by flies or parasites, they become agitated. And if sheep are hungry and in need of food, they will not rest. I didn't know that. So the good shepherd causes the sheep to lie down in the grass. He makes them to do that. The quiet waters. This is what's known as a... A plural of intensity. That sounds intense. <laughs> but it carries the idea of waters of tranquility or waters of refreshment. It's, it's not so much talking about the movement of the waters as it is their refreshing quality. So the idea here is like a tall glass of chocolate milk on a hot day. Yes, I said chocolate milk. <laughs> The kids would identify with that one. He restores my soul. And this is an idiom. It could have a couple of meanings here. One possibility, it's it's from the word shuv, this word restore. And that means literally to repent. 
So he repents my soul. He causes my soul to turn. Uh, he changes its direction or he renews it is the idea. He renews my soul. Um, so the shepherd refreshes the soul of the sheep. So the point is, in Hebrew, they, they typically pile up terminology to kind of amplify meaning. Okay, and, and so you get this, these heaped up terms. Uh, and, and the point is that these three ideas in their totality or combined describe the shepherd's provision for his sheep. He keeps them comfy. He keeps them safe. He keeps them nurtured. He keeps them refreshed. He renews them constantly. Without the shepherd, they would be out of luck. They'd be, they'd be wandering around trying to find food, and, and they'd be open to predators and all sorts of things. So it's, it's kind of, for us, it's a vicious cycle. We worry, which causes us to withdraw from the shepherd and try to handle things on our own, which causes us to worry more because we get more distant from him. And the further he gets away from us, the more obscured he gets from our view, the more we panic. And so the key here is drawing near to the shepherd, not distancing yourself from him when you are worrying. It's drawing near to him. Why worry? I mean, why, why do we worry? What do you not have that you need? That another way, what do you need that you do not already have? The Good Shepherd, He knows our needs, and He provides all that we need to be nurtured and refreshed. And His presence alone is what brings calm to our souls. And notice it says He wants for nothing, you know, it doesn't say he needs for anything. It says he wants. Even his wants are taken care of. There is a difference between needs and wants, right? The second thing he provides is righteousness for our paths. Verse 3, again. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And it's not just that he provides the paths to walk along, he also provides the guidance in the paths. That's the point. It's very easy for sheep to, to wander off trail, to, to go amiss. Uh, even some of the stories Jesus told, right, about the, the sheep that wandered away from the other ones and got lost. That one sheep that left the 99. Remember that story? There's always one sheep that kind of wanders off the trail. Well, the good shepherd guides the sheep. He keeps them in the paths because it's very easy for them to go off to their own peril. And oftentimes they lead other people right off the cliff. Uh, paths, they're just tracks, uh, literally tracks that have been formed in the road. So think of when it rains and the, the, the road becomes muddy and the, a wagon will roll across it. And then when the road dries out, you get tracks in the road, right? So you can... You can let go of the reins, and the cart will basically stay on the tracks. 
So our shepherd guides us or he keeps us in the righteous or the straight tracks out of harm's way. I think David here is really alluding to the idea that he's talking about not straying into sin or paths of unrighteousness. Most of your metaphors for sin in the Old Testament, most of the words describe this idea of a caravan going off trail, wandering off the path, missing the mark. And so here David is giving this idea that that the shepherd keeps the sheep on the straight and narrow, not because they deserve it, but because of his goodness, because of his beneficence, for the manifestation of his own glory. Do you see the phrase there, for his namesake? He does it for himself, not for us. You know, and it's no wonder Jesus uh, took this description of the good shepherd to himself. You know, John 10, verses 11 to 15, uh, there are shepherds who care nothing for the sheep. They're false shepherds. They, they take advantage of the sheep. They, they, um, they don't provide for them. They look out for their own needs. And then there's the good shepherd. And Jesus took that phrase to himself and said, I am the good shepherd. Right? I know my sheep and I call them by name. So distancing yourself from the good shepherd, straying into sin, is the wrong path. And the further you are from him, the more acutely you will stray or fall into the grip of worry and fear. And I believe the two are directly proportional. Closer to the shepherd, less worry. Further away, more worry. C.S. Lewis, a famous Christian author, he said, He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. Think about that. You could have God and everything in the world, and you'd be no better off than if you just had God. Think about that. You know, sheep are helpless, but the one that we belong to is not. He is self-sufficient, inexhaustible, utterly unchanged by time, sovereign, so we lack nothing. Our shepherd provides refreshment for our souls, and he provides righteousness for our paths. And who could have foresaw that that good shepherd would one day take the hit for the sheep? Right? Who could have seen that? That the good shepherd would come and he would lay his own life down for the sake of those sheep. What an amazing truth that is. It says, you know, that he provides righteousness. And beloved, you and I lack righteousness. We need righteousness and we don't have it. On the righteousness scale, we're not just a zero, we're a negative ten. Right? Think of it in math terms. And, and Christ's death gets us up to a zero, but you're still a zero. His righteous life, His righteous life imputed to us gets us to the plus whatever. <laughs> I can't even put a number on it. It's credited to our account based on our faith in Christ. That's an amazing truth. 
that if you don't know, you need to know that it is by faith alone in Christ alone that we have any hope of righteousness because we don't have it in ourselves. uh, How many righteous are there on this earth? None, right? There is none righteous. No, not even one. So righteousness had to come from outside the stream of humanity. And who would have thought it would have been the shepherd? Who would have thought it would have been the good shepherd who would lay down his life and impart righteousness to us by faith? What an amazing truth that is. You and I stand right before God, not because of anything we did, but because of what he did for us. That is an amazing truth, beloved. And if there's anything that causes you not to worry, I can think of nothing better. We don't have to worry about hell. Why? Because of Jesus. Because Jesus died in our place, the death that we deserved. And He paid the price that you and I could never pay. And because of that, because He was the perfect sacrifice, we get His righteousness. We don't become righteous. Don't make that mistake. We don't become righteous. We are at the same time just and sinner. We're still sinners. But we are justified before God on, because of our faith in Christ. So the first lesson, we need not worry because of God's provision, because of our shepherd's provision. Second lesson is, we need not fear because of our shepherd's presence. We need not fear because of our shepherd's presence. Verses 4 to 6. And the point here is that the close presence of our shepherd calms and quiets our fears like nothing this world has to offer. Not I fear. There's, there's two blessings here in the text of being in the presence of the shepherd. And the first one is comfort or consolation, if you will. Verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Not I fear. Why? For thou art with me. There's the presence. You're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. There's the comfort. So the, the presence of the shepherd brings comfort. Consolation is just another word for comfort. In the Hebrew, the verb uh, for comfort, naham, carries the idea of console. So you'll read that in Isaiah 40. Comfort, oh my people, comfort. That's the, that's the word. This is actually a conditional statement. And what do I mean by that? It, it, look at it with me. It says, even though. Do you see that? And the idea here is that even if, even if I were to walk through the shadowy places, even then I would not fear. Why? Because you're with me. 
Even then, I would not fear. The valley of the shadow of death, uh, literally a valley of death's shadow. That sounds a little more intense, but that's, uh, that's what it means. It could be an allusion to the, the seasonal passage from the lowlands to the, to the high pastures. The shepherd would take the sheep and he'd take them to the higher pastures that were greener and he would feed them there. And as the shepherd um, led them, as the sheep were led through the ravines and the wadis, there would be cracks in the crevices of the canyons, and predators would hang out there, and they would wait for the sheep, and when one wandered off the trail, they would pounce it. They would pounce it, and they would have lunch. And I think this is a metaphor for the uncertainties of life, honestly. It's talking about the uncertainties of life. When I get into those dark places in life, those trials, those difficulties, those dangerous times, I will not descend into fear. Why? Because I know you're with me. I know you're with me. And the, and the thing is that Not all of Christianity is is walking on the great righteous paths, right? (laughs) They're not all mountaintop experiences. Sometimes we have to go through the wadis and the valleys. Sometimes we have difficulties and trials and seasons of life. That's the reality. The point is that God, our shepherd, is present with us in those times. And so we're not alone. And so we need not descend into fear. The rod and the staff, these are just two tools of the trade. The rod was used to to club down the wild animals. The staff was used to shepherd the sheep, shepherd's crook. They're just a picture of God's constant vigilance over his sheep, over his own. And they bring comfort, not because of the tools themselves, but because of the one holding the tools. James Boyce says it this way, and I I like this. He says, The valley of the shadow of death is as much God's right path for us as the green pastures, which lie beside quiet waters. That is, the Christian life is not always tranquil, nor, as we say, a mountaintop experience. God gives us valleys also, and it is in the valleys, with their trials and dangers, that we develop character. We need trials in our lives to develop character. Why? Because it causes us to trust in God more. There's a Puritan writer. His name is Stopford Brook. I don't know why any of you don't name your children Stopford. I think that's an awesome name. But he says something I think is really important. He says he does not only give us comfort, that would weaken character. He gives us power, for the true comforter is the strengthener in pain, not the remover of pain. You understand that? It's not just that God would take away all the pain, It's just that he strengthens us in the midst of the pain. That's the real power, right? 
The answer to the sheep's fear is the close presence of the shepherd. He's the only one that can protect them. He's the only one that can calm their anxieties. What harm could befall you with the great shepherd watching over you? By the way, look at the text with me. It's probably no accident that there's a shift in pronouns right here at this point. What's a pronoun? Well, instead of saying, he does this, he does this, he does this, now it says, you. Right? You are with me. Your rod and staff comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. It turns into a prayer. So at the point where he is at the lowest point, the valleys, the death shadows, he turns to God in prayer. He turns to God in prayer. I think that is significant. You know, nowhere in Scripture has God ever promised to remove your pain. There is nowhere in Scripture where you are promised a pain-free life. What He has promised you is that in the midst of your pain, He will never forsake you or leave you. And why is that? Well, because the pain is just as much in his power as blessing is, right? He is the sovereign one. And it's not this tension between good and evil like we see yin and yang, that there is some sort of eternal struggle between good and evil. That's a misnomer if there ever was one. God is sovereign over everything. And he uses evil for his purposes, even in the lives of believers, right? God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose, right? Did we all hear that word, all? Yeah. The thing is, he's a good and wise and loving God. He's the good shepherd, and he dispenses what we need at the appropriate time to build us in character, to build us in endurance, to build us in maturity, to build us in Christ-likeness. Christ suffered. Right? So, seeking to escape all pain in life is not only unrealistic, it's unbiblical. God uses trials to build character and the fruit of righteousness in us. And for those of you who have maybe been part of the health and wealth movement, this is, this is really an area to look at for you. I don't have time to elaborate on that, so I'll, I'll just move on. But just to say there seems to be this fascination globally, not just in our country, with the health and wealth movement. That if you sow a seed of faith, God will bless you in this life. God will give you everything your heart desires. That is, that is not Christianity. That is not the message of the gospel, for sure. 
The second blessing from the shepherd's close presence is confidence. Verses 5 to 6. It says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Or if you have the King James, thou dost. Thou dost prepare a table before me. You have anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. This is talking about confidence. Uh, you know, some have suggested that the metaphor here is shifting, that we're going now from a shepherd to a sheik, if you will. Through a, in the ancient Near East, they're talking about a host, that God is a gracious host in his tent, if you will, and that he's preparing a table for his enemies, a banquet. Um, others say it's remaining with the idea of a sheep uh, and that God is, you know, this idea of a banquet. It's, it's, it's either the table, the anointing of oil, the cup filled. They're all, they're all pictures of ancient Near East hospitality. Or, uh, you know, if it's the shepherd sheep, it could be describing the, the preparation of the high tablelands or the mesas where the sheep graze in the summer. The ancient shepherds used uh, olive oil, sulfur, and spices to protect the sheep from insects um, and to promote healing of skin diseases. So maybe the cup speaks of God's provision in that way. We just don't know. We don't know, but the point is, in either case, the idea being communicated is the, the confidence that David has by being in the presence of the shepherd. That's what's being communicated, and it doesn't matter either way. In other words, what harm could possibly befall David that escapes the notice and the control of the, of the shepherd? Even his enemies are camped out there, right? They're camped out there, and what does God do? He sets a table in the presence of the enemies, right? How many of you are a glass-half-empty kind of person? All right, admit it. Let's see a hand. Uh, let, let me put it this way. How many of you, your spouses say you're a, half gla a glass-half-empty? <laughs> and how many of you are a glass-half-full? Now, as Christians, how many of you are cup overflowing? Yeah, I, I, think, I think it says that he fills that cup to overflowing. Now, surely, goodness and loving kindness in light of this, and the idea here is, is faithfulness, the, when two words are paired together, this is a word pair, and often the nuances of each word affect the other one. And so the idea here is faithfulness or loyal love. Uh, in Hebrew, it's tov, which means good, and chesed, which is often translated loving kindness, but it really means loyal love, covenant love. The idea when they're, when they're paired together is goodness and faithfulness. Right. The interesting thing about these two words is that it says that they'll follow him all the days of his life. And the verb here, radaf in Hebrew, is typically used of enemies pursuing somebody till they catch them and kill them. And it's the only time in the Old Testament where that verb shows up with these two nouns. In other words, what David is saying is, 
goodness and faithfulness are going to chase him down the rest of his life. Right? It's ironic, but it's, it's kind of a pleasant word picture to think of being chased down by the love of God the rest of your life. And it says he'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And the house of the Lord here, this is written pre-temple. And so we have to understand, is this talking about the tabernacle? Is it just a generic reference to God's presence? Is it, what is it? So I think it's the idea of God's presence. As I said, comfort is derived from the shepherd's presence. And that being with him, dwelling in his house, if you will. And you have to understand the ancient Near East again. Uh, They put their horses in their tents with them if they're prized horses. Um, And the idea of a sheep being in the tent with a shepherd, it's not out of the realm of possibility. The idea is God's presence. And the idea of forever, it literally says length of days. Length of days or... The idea with both of these terms, all the days of my life and length of days, it's the lasting nature of God's favor is the idea. It's probably not a reference to eternal life. It's probably a reference just that God's going to be good to him for as long as he's here. Right? David is saying he's safe and secure in the presence of the Lord, and because of that, he fears not. The nearness of the Lord should bring us confidence, thereby reducing fear's stranglehold on us, and it should bring us rest and peace. What is it today that holds you in the clutches of fear? Is it death? Strangers, the marketplace, spiders, financial ruin, sickness, traffic, elevators, being buried alive in a box. What is it that holds you in the grip of fear? And I would say to you that the presence of your shepherd should bring you rest and comfort. Now, how do we draw near to God? God is spirit, right? So how do we draw near to God? How do you draw near to a spirit? Well, He indwells us, doesn't He? Do we believe that God indwells us? As far as proximity, I don't think you can get much closer than that. Relationally speaking, though, We can confess our sins. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? We can pray. We can saturate our minds with His Word. We can meditate on Him and His attributes. We can worship Him. You know, we can also just sit quietly in His presence. You can just sit quietly. James 4, 8, right? Turn over there.
What's that say? Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And down to verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. I know this is in the context of uh, being slow to anger in the book of James. This is in the context of how to reduce quarreling and conflict. But the reality is that if, if you are at peace with others, it's easier to be at peace with God. So if you were a sheep dwelling in the, in the fields, would you not draw great comfort from the presence of the shepherd? Turn over to Colossians 3.1. Let me show you something. This is interesting to me. Galatians, Ephesians. I'm going to leave you with a little nugget here today. Colossians 3.1. Therefore. What's the therefore, therefore? It's the conclusion of an argument, right? He's talking about Jesus and the gospel and true worship. And he gets to 3.1 and he says, therefore... And the if is probably better translated since. Okay? Since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Let's read that again, but emphasize the commas. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. There's a difference than just saying, keep seeking the things above, i.e. heaven, where Christ is, versus seeking Christ in heaven. That's where he is. It's talking about his presence, the emphasis. That's why the comma is there. It's where Christ is, his presence how many of you think about that? You know, when I was a kid, I used to see Jesus hanging on that little crucifix in my room. And I never really thought about the fact that he's alive. Right? That's why the resurrection is a cornerstone of apostolic preaching. He's alive. And he's there. And we derive our hope from him. Right? He's there. And we're there with Him. And I'm not talking about some kind of pie-in-the-sky kind of thing, you know, where, where your head's in the clouds, but, but literally, all of you is in the clouds already. Right? We're here, but we don't derive our comfort from our circumstances. Right? We live a... As Christians, we have to kind of live above our circumstances because we're not, in a sense, all here. We're there. See what I'm saying? We're already there with Christ by faith. So if you struggle with worry, these are the things to think on. In the midst of the grip of fear... What are you thinking about? The circumstances? 
Or are you thinking about Christ? Are you thinking about what's nodding up inside your stomach and how things are going to turn out? Remember, Christians are in sin if they have what? I heard it. Yes, that's right. You can't say, but. Is God sovereign or isn't he? Does God providentially rule over this world and the universe and over evil? Yes, he does. So the great shepherd has you very much in his care. You need not fear. You need not worry. I think at its, at its root, what lies behind worry and fear, even in believers, is a shred of unbelief. Unbelief. It's really a struggle not believing in the abiding presence of God with them. Your trust in the great shepherd, right? You want to overcome sinful worry and fear, grow in your trust of the great shepherd. Right? Living in, in fear and worry is, is not living at all. I've been there. I was confined to my bedroom. Just walking to the bathroom, I would go into a panic attack. It was bad, folks. And how did I get over this? Prayed. I read. I studied theology. Trusted in God in those times. And understood that God is sovereign. And that even the bad things that might happen to me are part of what he calls good for me. Listen to what the writer of the Hebrews said, and I'll end with this. Chapter 13, verses 20 to 21. Now the God of peace, who brought you up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, we got the great shepherd on our side. Why do we worry? Why do we fear?